Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I was listening to a podcast as Tim Keller was kind of recounting a story about how he sat down with a pastor that had been caught in sexual sin. And he starts unpacking this situation uh, as he retells the story. And he said, how could you do this? I mean, how could you be preaching the Word of God while also entertaining this life of sin, the secret life that you had going on? How could you do these things? And the pastor looked back at him and he said, well, it went like this. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, as I was preparing my message, I would just be needled through with guilt. I would just be ever-present that there was something wrong that I was preaching these words while doing these things. And so I would make a deal with myself, this pastor said. I would, I would say, on Monday, I'm, I'm calling it off. I'm going to, to get away from this person. I'm going to call off this, this sin. So then I could kind of ease my conscience enough to get through the sermon preparation, get to Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, I would give the sermon and it would go extremely well. People would respond to the words. We would have great uh, response to what I said. And I was affirmed. And I said, God is still with me. So that by the time Monday through Wednesday came back around, I felt no need to call off my sin. And then we would start the process all over again. See, I wonder if the biggest issue that presses churches today is biblically defining repentance. We live in a self-defining world, don't we? Richard Lovelace has kind of uh, poured out this, this idea that in the early 1900s, Americans kind of had this uh, push to kind of conform. So everybody was kind of pulling together for these war efforts, efforts and everything that was going on in our country was to conform to commonly held identities. So you have in the 1950s, everything looking the same in these suburbs that are popping up everywhere around these U.S. cities. But then something happened in the 1960s where the emphasis was to be yourself. Now, this idea has only metastasized so that you do you or you own your truth. These things have kind of grown and grown so that now we have this uh, process of self-definition. And we also have the, the problems that come along with it, isolation and loneliness. But this self-defining world makes repentance individualized such that I would repent when I repent. I only do so to the truth that I myself have defined. And these ideas are only confused by the culturally defined spiritual markers like effective sermons and works done for God so that repentance becomes more confused by the, the, the ways that we go about doing our Christian life. Augustine said this, that the soul is resuscitated by repentance. If we are to be life-giving Christians or, or Christians who are called to this abundant life that Jesus talked about, we must also be repenting Christians. So here's our big idea this morning when we come to Jonah chapter 3. 
when we respond to God's corrective word, God relents of his destructive anger. When we respond to God's corrective word to us, the, the words that he gives to us, the words that he speaks through the scriptures or, or uh, well, through the scriptures, God relents of his destructive anger. We're going to see this in kind of three different movements. And really, we're going to see three different kind of repentances as they were. And we'll have to define this. But first, we're going to see Jonah's repentance. In verses 1 through 4, as, as Jonah kind of does what he's supposed to do. So Jonah goes to Nineveh like he was originally called to do. Secondly, we're going to see Nineveh's repentance. Nineveh's great and small respond to the words of the Lord. And then we're going to see this different kind of Thing, but it's the word repentance that the Lord himself relents of what he was promising himself to do. I'm going to unpack all of the intricacies of this passage and, and kind of get to the bottom of this. But overall, we want to see that when God gives us his words and we respond to them in faith, he promises us that he will relent of his anger and wrath at our sin. So I'm going to invite you into Jonah chapter 3 with me here this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Brian already read the passage for us this morning, but we want to kind of tackle it again. Look at Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah goes to Nineveh. And what starts here is in verse 1, we see this, that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, as it says. In fact, if we kind of compare verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, they're virtually the same thing with just a few minute differences. But this phrase, the second time, kind of highlights that the same thing is happening, that God's kind of brought Jonah back to the starting line, and he wants to invite him to this faithfulness yet again. And so Jonah is to arise and go to Nineveh and to call out against it in verse 2. And so this is what Jonah does in verses 3 and 4. Jonah arises, he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches. Verse 3 describes Nineveh as this great city, right? The city is massive, some three days journey in breadth, as the text says. MacArthur defines it. He tells us that historians uh, say that the city had magnificent walls, almost eight miles long, enveloped the inner city. And if you were to kind of go about the circumference of the city, it would be some 60 miles journey. It was just a massive metropolis there. But it's not just the size that's significant. There's some kind of hidden elements about this historically that we know that MacArthur kind of brings to the surface here, that these are fish worshipers, right? Some of you can barely stand the smell of fish, let alone to worship one, right? And MacArthur says this, he says, the name Nineveh is thought to derive from Ninus, for Nimrod, the city's founder, and means the re residence of Nimrod or Nunu, which is Akkadian for fish, right? Now, there goes grandma's Nunu's name, right? Thus, the city's name could be reduced to Fishtown. Moreover, the people worshipped the fish goddess Nanshi, uh, the daughter of E, the goddess of fresh water, and the fish dog Dagon. 
a statue of a man with a fish head. And as these examples indicate, fish were of particular significance to the Ninevites, which likely explains why they took such great interest in Jonah and his fish story when he first arrived in the city. It's worth noting that Jonah has just been dramatically vomited out of the inside of some giant fish onto the shores of of where he was supposed to go, and now smelling like fish vomit showing up in Nineveh, he starts to preach his message. And look at verse 4. This is the intricacy of this sermon. Some of you are longing for sermons like this. It's one sentence long. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And we should assume that this is the Lord's message that he promised to give Jonah back in chapter 3, verse 2, that when he showed up on the spot, that God would give him the words to say. In fact, God promises that the city will be overthrown. And it's the same term that's used in Genesis 19 of this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as God rains down sulfur and fire upon the city that he overthrows, as it were. This morning, we see Jonah return back to this kind of state of obedience, not full obedience. We recognize chapter 4 still exists, but Jonah's kind of returning back to this, this idea of doing what the Lord has called him to do. He's no longer fleeing from God's presence. He's no longer descending down and away from the presence of the Lord. Now he is intentionally trying to do what's right before the Lord. So it's a reminder to us that saints can be repentant. That repentance isn't just a pattern for those who are outside of the community of believers, that saints can actually put on patterns of repentance for themselves. Notice this, that Jonah, God's servant, does what he's supposed to do in this passage. And this is the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 3, that he goes to Nineveh, that he speaks God's message. It might be true this morning that Jonah still has some work to do, which we'll see next week in chapter 4, but it starts with this initial obedience from Jonah. See, saints should find themselves in regular patterns of confession and repentance. Why? Because it's true that we still have our sinful nature inside of us. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul describes that the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. That He describes that we have these warring natures inside of ourselves. I told this story before, but my, my father tells a story about they had these two dogs. One was a big boxer, and the other was this little yippy dog that the mailman wanted to kick all the time, right? And they, now don't judge my forebearers on this, but they would put one eye hook on the side of the house And they would put one length of chain between these two dogs. And sure enough, when the boxer ran after, the little yippy dog just hung off the side of the house. See, Jason liked that one. That's what we were before we were in Christ, right? We were bound to the big dog. Our sinful nature took us wherever it wanted us to go, and we had no will to oppose it, no strength to be able to stand up against it. But now, in Christ, we've been made new so that we have this infused second nature, the Holy Spirit that resides inside of us. We should anticipate an inner conflict in which I am torn between the two natures that now reside inside of me. My old flesh, the old man, in the new life, in the Spirit. You see this, don't you? Your parents. 
You see your child going toward the outlet and the finger is extended and it wants to touch the outlet. And you say, no, little Johnny, don't do that. And there's this moment of hesitation as he thinks about the thing he wants to do and he thinks about the desire to please his parents. See, oftentimes we feel conflicted between the desire to please our heavenly father and the desire to still do what we want. But these two, t- two natures should also have, uh, they, they bind us to these patterns of recalibration, repentance, where there will be times where I've been misled by my sinful nature. I feel the full conviction of the Holy Spirit on my heart. And I forsake those patterns to put on new righteous patterns in Christ. See, as long as the sinful nature resides in us, as long as we're alive, as long as this beating heart still beats within our chests, we'll find ourselves in some sort of conflict. And we should always be about this process of repenting. William Tyndall writes this, that repentance lasts all our lives long. Or Martin Luther says the same thing in the 95 Theses. It says, when our Lord, the Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So you and I should be committed to this uh, kind of Reformation ideology of semper reformanda. We should always be reforming ourselves. We should always be devoted to uh, putting on new patterns of righteousness. To be clear, there is no foreseeable future in which you and I, with the sinful nature still infused in us, we would still be alive and our feet planted on this earth where we will have outgrown repentance. There's not some state of arrival when I no longer need to be repenting of my sin and recalibrating my heart to the the work of a good and gracious God in me. In fact, Jonah stands as a great example of this, doesn't he? He stepped into a a little bit of obedience here in chapter 3. But chapter 4 is going to come like a tidal wave for Jonah. Chapter 4 is going to just break Jonah open and expose the inner inconsistencies of his own heart and mind. That's the Christian life. Some of us think that Christian life is one of constant victory where I just am constantly winning and beating my sin and and constantly having this kind of uh, sense of joy and presence and happiness. That's not what it is. It is one of constant conflict with myself. But Jonah isn't the only one whom God wants to work in in this passage. And as we get to verses 5 through 9, we're going to see that these Sinners also need to repent. It's not just for saints, and it's not just for sinners. Repentance is for all of those who God calls to himself. And so Nineveh's great and small respond in verses 5 through 9. Look with me there at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh 
By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What happens in verse 5 is the people respond, and then in verses 6 through 9, the king responds. So first we kind of get this notion of this movement amongst the city in verse 5, so that the people believed God. They hear the message of the sure destruction of their city, and they respond in belief. And so Jonah calls out to Nineveh, and Nineveh calls for a fast. They're responding to these words of God in like kind. So what they do is they put on sackcloth, right? It's not the most popular clothing item today. In fact, it's intentionally uncomfortable. It's probably made from hemp or flax or animal hair of some kind. And it's meant to make you as uncomfortable on the outside as you already are on the inside, right? There's this uh, conviction, this deep conviction that's happening to these people in the city, and they want to be outwardly what they are inwardly. And so they are putting themselves in this state of mourning, as it were. This happened from all these different socioeconomic classes. It says it was from the greatest of them to the least of them. It's interesting to know that all of Nineveh responds to God's Word. It's not just the wealthy or the poor. It's not just the east side or the west side or this nationality or that nationality. When God speaks His Word, it tends to fall with equality on all of His people, no matter where they are. This is what happens in the city of Nineveh. And so in verses 6 through 9, as we see, it goes from the the least of them to the greatest of them. And then we see the example of the greatest of them in verse 6 as the king starts to respond. So he responds personally in verse 6. The king uh, gets off of his throne. He removes his robe and he puts on sackcloth. And this is quite a statement. Just imagine for a second what it would be like for our leaders to step down from their position, to take on an intentional uh, discussion about their wrongdoing, to kind of publicly own the things that they have failed in. We haven't seen that in our lifetime, at least not that I remember. And so he responds publicly as well in verses 7 through 8. He mandates this outward repentance. He mandates a fast for for people and for animals. He mandates that they put on this sackcloth. And then he talks about this inward repentance that has to happen. He calls them to cry out to God in verse 8, that they they should abstain from evil and violence in verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And finally, in verse 9, the king gives us this reason for all of this, right? He says, who knows? Maybe God would turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So we recognize it's not just for saints to repent, it's for sinners to repent. The people of Nineveh dramatically turn from their sin. And notice that they aren't turning with a guaranteed outcome. There's this notion in verse 9 of like, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what God is going to do, right? 
They recognize that with a God of justice like Yahweh, that this is a fool's hope. We don't know that God will actually turn from this sense of justice that he's going to bring, right? Genesis chapter 2, God promises Adam that in the day they eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, that they would surely die. We have examples like Nadab and Abihu and, and others that when they kind of violate God's rules and God's way of doing things, they get instantaneous death. And so where do these get off thinking God will, might be gracious to us? Too many times we think of God like a, a computer program, like a, a robot, so to speak, because his character is perfect. We, we say that he's predictable. And if God's a God who forgives, when I come in repentance, He's bound to, to forgive. We'll see that in just a second here. For these Ninevites, the reality of their sin meant that they were more concerned about their sin than they could be about the outcome. They're saying, who knows? But we know that, that we violated God's righteous standard, but who knows if He'll relent or not? But right now, we have to deal with our stuff. The truth is this morning is that God is still inviting sinners to turn from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ. Even now, the God of heaven is extending an invitation. If you are to avoid his wrath, there must be turning from sin, which you currently cling to. For too many of us, we, we have this notion that Jesus Christ will be our Savior, but he doesn't have to be my Lord. That I can have some vague notion that God at the end of time will bring me into his forever presence. He'll, he'll bring me into heaven, but I don't have any responsibility to him right now. After all, it would seem to us that the purpose of religion is to make us feel better about ourselves, right? Isn't that what we feel like religion is for? It's supposed to make us feel better to kind of ease our conscience about ourselves. And all of this talk about Jesus being a Lord to be submitted to, well, it's just behind the times. The faith in Jesus has always required an abandonment of our former patterns of life. This is the call of Jesus, right? We talk about this all the time. Jesus makes these claims like, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He'd take up his cross. Jesus says in places like Luke 5, he says that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If we are to follow Jesus... It can't be on our own terms. We can't just constantly be negotiating the, uh, the parameters of our repentance with a holy God in heaven. Following Christ is a willingness to crucify the person I once was and become someone who trusts Jesus and obeys him. Just like these Ninevites are turning from their patterns of evil and violence, we also need to turn from our patterns that hold us from God's presence. So verse 9 says, who, who knows? Verse 10, we get an answer to that question. Who knows? What we see in verse 10 is a gracious God relenting of His fierce anger. Look at verse 10. 
when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Notice first, God saw. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. You know, from the start of our country, there was this kind of philosophical religion called deism. And deism said that that God was like a, a divine watchmaker. He kind of built the structures of the universe, and then he set it spinning, and, and then he stepped away, and he has no contact with it now. That God is somehow all-powerful, but disconnected and removed from our reality. But here in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, we see that God saw. And he's interacting with his world. He sees the sins of the Ninevites so that he speaks his word and then sees their turning from their sin. And God is not removed from this situation. He is very present and active even today. What happens is that he relents. Verse 10, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Remember that just a few verses before, in verse 4, he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message of Jonah, right? Hey, you've got 40 days to get your act together, or, or Nineveh is going to be overthrown. You've got 40 days and destruction is coming. So how is it that the God of, of, of honest, truthful words is giving this message and then relenting? It highlights this morning this truth that we see God say of himself, that he is merciful and compassionate, that he by no means clears the guilty, but that he is a God that is oriented to grace and kindness. There's this passage in Jeremiah 18 And I think it has bearing on our discussion here this morning. It's on the screen in front of you. Uh, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. He's promising us that he is a gracious God, that when he sees repentance and turning from evil and wickedness, that he will relent of his right righteous anger. So there we have it, right? God promises destruction, but those to be destroyed turn from their sinfulness, their evil, and take his warning seriously, and God relents of his anger. This morning, though, this isn't just some ancient story far removed from us, is it? This isn't just some um, folklore that was passed down by these Hebrew people. This is a story of God's particular grace to his servant Jonah, and a story, an invitation to us to consider his grace this morning. See, we too need to know that God himself is not a part of our cancel culture, that he has this, this way of interacting with us, of forgiving our wrongs of reintroducing us to His grace. God doesn't, want, uh, doesn't give up on us like Humpty Dumpty who can't put himself back to, together again. We, we ourselves can't put ourselves back together again, but God still orients Himself toward us in grace. 
See, God relents of his anger, and that's good news to us this morning. It's true. Our disobedience stirs God's anger, doesn't it? Remember last year I was reading through the scriptures and I hit the book of Numbers. And Numbers describes on a few different occasions that uh, there's this pattern where the people grumble against God in disobedience and God's anger burns against them. In fact, that's the language that's used all the time. God's anger burned. It kind of culminates through 11 and 12 and 13 until eventually we get to to chapter 25. And what happens is that a man, an Israelite, brings a Midianite woman into the camp of the Israelites, and he's going to uh, sleep with her. He's going to make her his wife, which has been broadly forbidden uh, in their camp. And so what happens is Phineas, one of uh, kind of Moses's entourage there, grabs a spear and goes into this man's tent and kills them both. And this is God's words about this in Numbers chapter 25. He says, Phineas has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy, right? Phineas turned back the wrath of God through executing the wrath of God on his behalf, right? And so he turns back God's wrath by punishing sinners. So we see this again in 2 Kings 23, 26. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked them. Wicked king doing all kinds of wicked things, and God is holding back his fierce anger against Israel. We see this time and time again. Our sin provokes the wrath of God against us. And so all of us, as John chapter 3 says, are under the wrath of God. That we cannot escape it. We need grace and mercy from God to kind of release it for us. We ourselves, by our sin, have earned this wrath. Sin provokes the wrath of God. It demands judgment. This is why we Christians, we speak of this place called hell. It's not just this folklore. It's real. It's legitimate. A place where the wrath of God is expressed in an eternity of conscious torment. We see Jesus speak of it in places like Matthew 25. We see Paul speak of it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We see this theme spoken of time and time again, and yet we want to dismiss it as if it were not real. Our sin provokes the wrath of God. And if I were to speak to you about repentance this morning and not warn you about the real justice and wrath of God against sin, I would not be doing you justice. I would not be loving to you this morning. See, here's the good news. That Jesus' death has satisfied the wrath of God so that sinners like you and I can repent. That God has given us a a way forward in repentance, of turning from sin by His gracious provision of His own Son, Jesus Christ. 
See, God gives us the possibility of repentance in the death of His own Son, Jesus. Romans 6 is is a passage that I have loved for so many years. It was uh, a friend of mine, a, a roommate of mine early on in my time in college that kind of opened my eyes to understand Romans chapter 6. And so uh, I set to the process of trying to memorize the, the first portions of this passage, and it has served me in so many ways. Romans 6 starts off, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And the answer is by no means, right? You, you died to sin, how can you still live in it? But he comes to this point in Romans 6, 4, and he says this, we were buried, therefore with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we get this backwards, don't we? We try to walk in newness of life and and then try to earn God's standing or good standing with God. But what Paul is telling us is that we've been buried with Jesus through baptism into death and you and I are participants in Christ. That we're unified with him in his death and in his resurrection so that now we can walk in this newness of life. We can put aside those old patterns of sin and put on these new patterns of righteousness in Christ. See, our repentance is available to us because of Jesus' substitutionary death and powerful resurrection. This means, Christian, that you no longer need to be stuck in your sinful patterns. Like the Ninevites, you too can turn from your sin and put on patterns of righteousness. This means that if you're here this morning and you've never heard of the true life in Jesus Christ, you also can come to Him in faith and find your sins and past wrongs forgiven. You see, truthfully, there is no way we could turn from our sin without the death of Jesus. No way we could walk in newness of life without Jesus' resurrection. If he wasn't raised, you and I can't change. So here's the upshot of this this morning. We look at Jonah 3. This is our call. Let's be a people marked by repentance. Today, there is a danger in our American understanding of repentance. American repentance wants to deal lightly and vaguely with sin. We want to deal lightly with sin such that it's not a big deal We want to talk about sin as if it weren't uh, an offense to God, as if it wouldn't keep us from eternity with God. We want to kind of gloss over sin as if it weren't such a bad thing. We, We say, well, this is something that people always do, or we describe it like we describe our mistakes. Sometime, take a few moments or a few days and sit down and read the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and see how seriously God takes sin. Sin will not be tolerated by a righteous and holy God. 
you know, imagine this morning, this is kind of a stupid analogy, right? But imagine this morning there is a, a, um, a vendor that deals in gods, Godmart, right? I'm sure some Christian store has called themselves Godmart at some point, right? They traffic in testaments and all those other things. But Godmart, you step in and you're saying, you know, I'm looking for a God who, um, who's strong against other people's sins, but is accommodating of mine. Do you have anything in that? You know, I was looking for that. That's American Christianity, isn't it? A God who wants to condemn all the things that I condemn, but is soft to the things that I'm soft on. So we have this pattern of dealing with sin lightly, glossing over. When our God wants to deal with sin seriously, intentionally, He wants to send His prophets to particular cities in particular places and deal with particular sins. But it's not just that we deal with it lightly, it's that we deal with it vaguely. So that we don't name specific sins or or anything else. We talk about my sin, vaguely. We use kind of uh, broad terminology, right? I, I sin with my tongue. I've committed sexual sin. I've done, and we have categories of sin we're willing to confess, but not specific sins. Have you ever noticed this? We say sorry when we've done something wrong to someone, I say something foolish to my wife, I say, I'm, I'm sorry, rather than asking forgiveness. Sorry is a statement about how I feel about my sin. It doesn't get to the root of my sin, and it doesn't really give that person confidence that I understand the nature of my sin, or even that I won't perform it again. It just really says that I feel very badly about my sin that I've done to you. It has no recognition of my culpability before God. It has no recognition of, of what exactly and specifically I've done wrong. I hold that intention with this statement. Will you forgive me for... You see the intention of that statement? It gets to the heart of the matter. It says, I've wronged you in this way. I know that God views it as sin. I view it as sin. And I'm committing that I will not view it in any other way before you. See, our tendency is to deal with sin lightly and vaguely. I want to highlight a few things from our passage in closing that would be good patterns of repentance for us. Jonah 3 provides us with a rich picture of repentance. So the first thing is that true repentance is believing what God says about our sin. Isn't that the, where this whole thing started in verse 5 when the people of Nineveh believed God? And many will highlight that the word repentance itself highlights a, a change of mind. It's, it's kind of this change of understanding that happens. In fact, there's other theologians, Burkhoff and others, that say that a change of, of character or change of habit is actually a fruit of that initial act of changing my mind in repentance. But regardless, the two often look the same for us. We change our mind about what God says about our behavior. And so the starting point of biblical repentance is belief belief that God's words are true, that when he says what he says in this word, that it's binding for us. Belief that he is a God who, whom he says he is to be, 
right? He's holy and just and righteous. And so true repentance is believing what God says about our sins. Secondly, true repentance is owning our sin appropriately. Notice that this is what happens. How many times do we hear about sackcloth in this, in this passage in Jonah chapter 3? In verses 5 and 6 and 8, they're constantly putting on this uncomfortable dress. They're owning their sin appropriately. They're calling out and, and admitting their sin openly. The king is coming off of his throne, sitting himself in ashes, such that we would also be those who are owning our sins. That we, If we want to repent, we have to own our sin in appropriate places. So true repentance is believing what God says about our sin. True repentance is owning our sin appropriately. Finally, true repentance is turning from our sin. Isn't that the language used here in verse 8? Let everyone turn from his evil way. If we are to repent, that means to actually put away these patterns, to change our behaviors, to do something different rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. So if we're to repent, we start with belief, we move to confession, and we move to righteous behavior. I was thinking this morning about two different examples of premarital counseling. Now, before I share these examples, you don't know them, I promise, okay? So don't try to think, I think that's him, that's that guy, right? The first example was a couple that came to us and I didn't know them very well, but we started and they asked for some premarital counseling and, and we started working through things with them. And every time we do premarital counseling, just be forewarned, we ask about um, purity. We believe that uh, the marriage bed is to be kept pure until after you have made promise to one another in marriage. So we would ask them about that. Are, are you sexually active? And uh, this couple just really struggled. And it kind of increased and increased. And every week we would ask about this and ask about this every time we would get together. And eventually they, they just, they couldn't abstain. They couldn't repent. It wasn't available to them. And so we had to kind of just say, hey, we're, we're not going to do this wedding. I can't in good conscience continue down this path with uh, some of the patterns of behavior we see. So there's a, a story about someone who, couldn't repent. I held that in contrast with another story of premarital counseling where um, fiance, two people engaged together, come and sit down and talk with us. And we say, hey, are you sexually active? And they looked at us and they said, yes, yes, we are. And it was funny because the, the man, he spoke up and he said, but it's okay. I looked through the Bible, and the Bible doesn't say anything about premarital sex. I looked it up in the accordance. There is no premarital sex entry in the accordance. Did you look up fornication? Because that's the word. And so we unpacked the scriptures, and we showed them, hey, this isn't right. And as they went through this, this young man decided that that was God's standard. And he started to try and hold his fiance to this. And it became a dividing point to the point that the, the engagement itself broke up. They cut off that behavior, and it cost them that relationship, that marriage. 
Praise God that this young man decided to, to do what was right, to walk in this way, and he modeled a form of biblical repentance. As he was initiated in the Word of God, he heard what God's standard was. He responded in belief and in faith. He cut off the actions that were displeasing to God. We ourselves are fully equipped through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, fully equipped this morning to be a repenting people. Are you ready to step into these patterns of repentance? Or is your sin so near and dear to you that you will cling, it, cling to it till your dying day? Let's be those who avail ourselves of the fullness of God's resurrection in Christ, who walk in these patterns of richness and obedience, who embrace a life of repentance, so that Jesus would receive maximum honor and glory in us. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would receive all honor and glory due to your name. You, Lord, have paved the way for us to be a repenting people, to be raised to new life with Christ, to be uh, sealed with your spirit, is to be one who is equipped for life and godliness. Lord, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. So Lord, allow us to walk in patterns of appropriate repentance and confession. We pray these things in Jesus' name.